The Lord be with you. Let's pray together. Our Father, grant us wisdom through your holy word that we might know you more fully, be formed in Christ Jesus our Lord in faith, and be inspired and empowered by your spirit to love others and hope in you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We continue our study, our third week out of four, of the Nicene Creed. And I want to begin this morning by reading from Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our focus this morning in our study of the scriptures is on that second part of the creed. If we can move on to the next slide, um, that is uh, here in red. It's the longer part of the creed. It's the reason why the Nicene Council was held, especially the first part. This uh, red part has two things to say about Jesus. The first part is who he is, and the second part is about what he has accomplished. And we want to look at both of those this morning. Um, but the main reason for the Nicene Council was the first part of this. And that's where we kind of get lost sometimes in trying to figure out what is going on here. It's a lot easier to say the Apostles' Creed. But the Nicene Creed has this extra stuff in it that gets our tongues tied sometimes, but it's very important. As Paul says, if we confess that Christ is Lord and believe him in our heart, uh, you know, this is the basis of our salvation. So let's move on. Uh, just quickly here, I want to say that our outline for this morning is to cover that first part uh, of the confession about who Jesus is. And this is the language of the begotten and the substance. What is that all about? We have to go back to the fourth century to understand um, this language, and then also to understand how important it is, because it was a response to a heresy that was associated with, with someone named Arius that had to be sorted out in the church. Many people, when they introduce uh, this subject, say that the greatest challenge to the Christian faith that was ever faced was the challenge by Arius. And uh, my friend Don Fortson at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary says that we haven't faced anything uh, in church history uh, like the challenge um, that we face today on the issue of homosexuality uh, since the time of the challenge that the church had by Arius. And why is that? Why would someone say that? It's because the church was being splintered in radical ways then on, that on the issue around what Arius was teaching and as it is today. And you will find uh, mainline churches who every Sunday with us, as we will after this uh, lesson this morning, uh, re repeat the Nicene Creed. And yet many people will not actually believe it. 
that don't actually believe that Jesus died for our sins or do not actually believe that he was raised from the dead, physically, literally raised from the tomb. And yet this is what we confess about Jesus Christ. So this is the importance of, of looking at this this morning. Then we'll go on to look at the what I call the traditional material that had been around a long time that, that didn't need to get sorted out at the Nicene Creed uh, and, and the Nicene Council. But it's, it's the statement of the story of Jesus from his, incarnation, from his uh, pre-existence and incarnation to his ascension and his coming again. And then I want to turn back to Ephesians, the passage we're reading each of these three Sundays, Ephesians 1, uh, 3 through 14. I want to ground our thoughts in Scripture by continuing to go back to Ephesians, but also to see how it is relevant for us. It's not a just, just a statement of faith, as important as that is, but it also says something wonderful about what life in God is all about. And so the Nicene Creed then uh, is also a reminder of the great benefits that we have in Christ Jesus. So let's move on then, Joel. Um, this is our first subject, and then the next slide. The uh, begotten and the substance issues. Now, we're talking about the early 4th century when we talk about the Nicene Creed, but this has been an issue that has been building in the church since the 2nd century. Um, we could just say that there are various issues that the church keeps having to face about who God is. Now remember, Christianity uh, builds out of Judaism, an old faith that confessed as first and foremost that there is only one God. And yet this proclamation in a Gentile world was to an audience that believed in many gods and many spiritual beings. And so the Christian church, as it extended beyond uh, Israel and beyond the Jews into the Gentile world, had to face a culture that was pressing on them the idea that maybe there were these other gods that they had to contend with. And this is where the church has to sort things out over the first three centuries. Yes, there is only one God, and he exists in three persons. And this was the unique statement of the church. Now here, we go back earlier than the fourth century to the uh, end of the second century and beginning of the third century to another problem the church was facing. And the next slide will bring this into uh, more clarity because it's a, it's a graphic representation of this. But hang in there with me for a second with the words here. Uh, the, a, a teaching came up in the church that we call by different names. One of them is monarchianism. And think of a monarch. Um, the monarchianism taught that the Father was the same person as Jesus Christ and so was born and suffered. There is only one God, therefore the Father had to be the Son and the Son had to be the Spirit, was the reasoning that went there. Went there. One of the people that uh, argued this was a person by the name of Praxius. And uh, an Orthodox uh, minister of the Word who became a bishop of Alexandria by the name of Tur uh, Tertullian uh, argued the orthodox position of Trinitarianism over against that. He, he in fact, uh, he gave us the language 
that continued to be used and is still used in the church for understanding the relationship of the idea of one God and three persons. He's the one who gives us the language of Trinity. And he, um, he's the one who gives us the language of substance. And so now, you, as you see Tertullian's response, first of all, he replies to Praxius with the simple rule of faith that the church had been saying uh, for a long time. Uh, the rule of faith, which is very much like the rest of the Nicene Creed statement about Jesus, the story of Jesus and his, his existence. Um, a Trinitarian confession, though, that uh, is a confession in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then the real issue is, and how do we understand the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit? And so Tertullian goes on to say that we believe in um, that God is both one and triune. And the next points are points that get us kind of lost. And unfortunately, Tertullian doesn't develop them too much. But he says, now look, I'm, I'm saying that there are three, not in condition, but in degree. And perhaps what he means by that is equal in glory, uh, though hierarchical in relationship to each other, Father and Son, or the sending or the proceeding of the Spirit from the Father. And then not in substance, but in form. And this is the really important part of what comes to be developed in the church, to talk about substance, uh, God, this, God having one substance. Not in substance, but in form. Uh, each is equally fully divine, though separate in person. And then, we, then he says, not in power, but in aspect, uh, which uh, could mean equally omnipotent, but functioning differently. Not that the Son was weaker than the Father, for example. Okay, well, uh, it gets difficult, doesn't it, to try to articulate this. So let's move on to the next slide and see uh, how this uh, gets wrongly articulated, first by this monarchian group on the left side here. And some of you will have heard other names for this, modalism, Sabellianism, patropassionism. Uh, patropassionism is a good title because it has the idea that the father, the pater, suffered on the cross, the passion. And that gives you the idea of what this is. Modalism, God takes on different modes of existence. He's the Father, then he's the Son, then he's the Spirit. But he's the same one. In, in the Garden of Eden, he has to be talking, Jesus has to be talking to himself when he prays to the Father on this. You get into some serious theological trouble if you try to follow this view. But sometimes, and maybe you've heard this, the Trinity is explained in terms of the same uh, substance of ice, uh, water and steam. They're all H2O, but they just take on different form. That's actually modalism. That's not, that's not uh, Trinitarian theology. On the other side, and this is the group now that causes such a crisis in the church that the church has to call a council, an ecumenical council in 325 AD called the Nicene Council that pr produces the first version of the Nicene Creed. And uh, this group is saying the exact opposite of what these monarchians were saying. They weren't on the side of absolute sameness in just different modes, but they were on the side of uh, serious difference. Uh, so Arius insisted that the Father was a different essence, being, or substance from Jesus who was created before the rest of creation. 
You see that uh, this is a subordination of Jesus and the Spirit to the Father in uh, not just uh, authority, uh, but in other ways too, including in substance, actually a different uh, being from God the Father. Uh, another example of this kind of thinking is uh, associated with someone named Theodore. It's called adoptionism, where uh, the idea is that Jesus was actually born a man, and he was a man, but God decided to adopt him into the Godhead. So you can see the issues that the church is facing and had to give a response to in this. In the middle, we have the orthodox position here, which is the simple statement as difficult as it might be sometimes to get our minds around it. And we do talk about the mystery of God, right? That's, but uh, we believe in that God is one substance in three persons. And uh, from the creed, that is from the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. And here I've used the image of uh, light taken uh, from light. Uh, fire from fire, as one candle is passed to the other. The, the first flame is not diminished by taking from the, the second, the first flame is not diminished by the second flame coming from it. It's the same too, and, and yet you can talk about difference, uh, not difference but not separation in the technical language of the church. Let's move on and... Uh, look a bit more at Lucian of Antioch and Arius, uh, his student, and what they taught. It's, it's good to get a graphic in front of us to see what's going on here. Uh, they believe in this God who is unbegotten, who then creates Jesus as a separate act of creation. And then Jesus goes on in the power of God to create other things. But that puts Jesus below the solid line in the realm of created things uh, from uh, God the Father who is uncreated and unbegotten. Now, have you heard that before? We don't have to go to the fourth century to, to look at that. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Uh, they don't believe that uh, Jesus is unbegotten. They, believe, they don't believe the Spirit is a person and so they believe something very similar to what we have here. It's a, it's a continuation of the Arian uh, 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 heresy. Arius wrote to Bishop Alexander, who preceded Athanasius in Alexandria, we know one God, he said, alone unbegotten, the Son begotten by the Father is created and was not before he was begotten. Do you see how the language of, of begotten gets into the center of the argument? Uh, between uh, the heretics and the orthodox. And so the language of begotten is to be found in our creed, but it's explained. Let's move on. Um, here, then, we can see the language of begotten in the scriptures. And I think it's important to point out that nowhere does scripture say Jesus was begotten. And yet the language of begotten shows up in the Nicene Creed. It's because it's the discussion of uh, these different groups. Now, in, in translation in English, sometimes you will find this language of begotten in some translations. Um, 
but it's, it's, uh, it's, an, it's a noun. The noun is monogenes up there in Greek. It really means only son. If you have an only child, that is your monogenes. And what does an only child mean? An only child is the only one. There's not another one. And therefore, he's the only one who can represent the father. Nobody else can represent the father but that only child. An only child is a beloved child because you have no other children to love, a specially beloved child. And so when we find this language, and it's unique to John, when we find this language in John's writings, what, what John is saying is that, <clears throat> well, well, look at the verses with me. Um, and by the way, what's underlined and in bold in these verses is the word monogenes. So we don't actually find the word son in chapter 1 of 14 of John, uh, as in this translation, but we, we read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the monogenes, <laughs> Uh, from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's saying, this is the full representation of the Father, full of divine glory, um, full of God's grace and full of truth. That language of grace and truth is throughout the Old Testament where we read steadfast love and faithfulness of God to his people. Jesus was full of that identity of God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the monogenes God, amazing statement from John. The only Son God. John is affirming the deity of the only Son uh, who is at the Father's side has made him known. John 3:16 and 18. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only Son. There we have monogenes with the word Son in the Greek. Uh, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3:18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son, the monogenes Son of God. And then in 1 John 4, 9, and, this, the, uh, it, and in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son, his monogenes, into the world so that we might live through him. God manifests his identity in love through the sending of the Son, as John 3.16 also says. Now, the begotten in, in the sense of, uh, not in the literal sense of having a child, but begotten in the sense of salvation is used often in Scripture of us. We are begotten of God. So you can see it's a non-literal use for us. But uh, for, for, for Jesus, this language appears not in terms of the verb begotten, but in terms of this special word, only child. Uh, and it's, it's not a literal sense. So in other words, the scripture is not saying God had a son, literally. And it's often the Muslims try to point out the failure of Christianity because we believe in something so awful as that God had a son. Uh, but that's not what we believe. Uh, we believe that God... Uh, the monogenes is co-eternal with the Father. It's the relationship we're talking about and the representation of Christ to us, of the Father that we find. Uh, these sorts of things, the love of God, this is what this language means for us. So let's move on here. Um, 
the actual Nicene Creed that was produced at Nicaea in 325, as I said last week, is not the one we say. The actual Nicene Creed is this, up on the left side of the screen, along with the second box, which had anathemas. And if you believe this, you're anathematized by the church. Um, and we don't say the anathemas, but we've also expanded um, the, the creed as well. Notice the, it's small, I know, if you can't see it, but it's in white at the top and the white at the bottom. That affirmation of in God the Father and the affirmation in the Holy Spirit is not in contention at Nicaea. It's the middle bit that has to get emphasized and worked out. And so the middle bit then says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten, and I've thrown up the Greek there, not to be fancy, but to, to show it's a different word. Uh, begotten from the Father, the only begotten, there's our monogenes word. But in English translation, we, we use the same word. Um, and uh, so what it's really trying to do is to say, our belief in Jesus as the only begotten is in this sense that John was using it, the monogenes, not in the sense of God had a child. And that's going to go on, he's going to go on, the creed goes on to affirm this. That is from the substance, there's that language of substance, of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. Notice the language light of light. That was the image I used earlier to try to express this. Begotten, but now the council says not made over against the Arians. And then, of one substance with the Father, there's that famous word that some of you have even learned to pronounce and you don't know Greek, homoousion. Um, same substance. And uh, through whom all things came, I've lost a bit of that there, in heaven and in things on earth. But this is the affirmation that Jesus uh, is involved in creation is an affirmation of having co-equal power with the Father, not a lesser God. And then, uh, who became, who because of us and because of our salvation, and now we have the rest of what's stated about Jesus as the normal stuff that people were saying in their other creeds and the rule of faith and, and at their baptism. This, this other stuff is the narrative of Jesus Christ. That is that he came down became incarnate, became man, suffered, rose again on the third day, ascended to the heavens, and will come and judge the living and the dead. That's not in contention at Nicaea. It's that bit that we're stuck on there, unbegotten in substance. And then the anathemas go on to affirm what was just stated. In case you missed it, people, we're going to make sure that you understand that this is what we're saying. Uh, God is, Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. Didn't come along later. And so he says, there was, uh, but as for those who say there was when he was not, and before being born he was not, that he came into existence out of nothing, like the rest of creation, or secondly, who assert that the Son of God is of a difference, hypostasis or substance, both words being used there, or created, 
or is subject to alteration or change, these, the Catholic, that means the universal church, and the apostolic church, that means the ancient church, all the way back to the apostles, anathematizes. Okay, so this was the issue at Nicaea, and this is why we end up with this language in the Nicene Creed. How many of you were puzzled by substance and begotten language? You know, the begotten language, you can say, is it really saying that God had a son? But you, now you see that it's emphasizing that's not what it's saying. Begotten in the sense of the relationship of father to son, not begotten in the sense of having a son, and not, not made, therefore, is the key addition here. Okay, let's move on, Joel. Um, trying to put this into a, a diagram, our belief in the Trinity uh, as Orthodox Christians is that we believe on the left side that there is one God who is consubstantial. There's a word to write down. That's the same substance. Not a different substance, not one God and then something else that God created called Jesus, but one substance in three persons. And then um, we have this uh, idea of being co-eternal, therefore. Uh, Jesus didn't come along after the Father. So the, the triune God is distinct from creation and therefore outside of time, eternal. And then thirdly, there are three persons in the Trinity. Um, different, but not separate, was the way they, they talked about this. They, and and, and uh, very practically, this means our understanding of God is that he was always relational. Can you imagine if you had an idea that there was only one God and not three persons, and then sometime way in the, in, into his existence, uh, he, he decides to create a world to have a relationship with? Uh, that would suggest that God lacked something and needed something. Uh, and therefore had to create something to relate to it. That would suggest that there was no such thing as love except maybe self-love until uh, there was another to love. That would mean that there could be no faithfulness in the relationship and so forth. And so one of the things that, although it might be difficult to get our minds around the language of substance and person, um, yet very practically we, we know that what we have experienced of God's love and what we know of God's glory is something that has been shared in the three persons of the Trinity from time eternal. And this is what we are affirming when we say we believe in one God uh, in three persons. Okay, Joel. Um, let's move on then to the traditional material, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and the next slide. Uh, here, we've already said what it is. The, the narrative is, and I've got a diagram on the next slide to show this again, that God, Jesus existed from eternity with the Father. He has pre-existence. He's not created. Um, he becomes incarnate. He, 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 his passion of suffering and crucifixion and his death uh, and then his resurrection and ascension and parousia 
are part of the story that we tell of who Jesus is. And uh, last week we did bring up the passage of Ignatius just to show that we have something like this stated very early on in the, in the early second century. The church is continuing to talk about uh, who, what Jesus has done in this story form uh, right from the very beginning. Um, and that's what's picked up in the Nicene Creed. The next slide will show that uh, we're talking about this um, kind of a movement, if you want to remember it that way, a graphic just to remember that narrative from pre-existence to the parousia, the second coming. We live on that curve uh, between ascension and parousia right now, and we look forward to the second coming of Christ. And then the next slide uh, shows that this statement of Jesus' narrative is part of the statement that the early church used to affirm in their baptism. And often it's the Apostles' Creed that we say when there is a baptism to, to capture this part of, of the affirmation um, rather than the whole Nicene Creed, which is longer. And um, the, the baptismal statement is from Hippolytus in the early third century, and you can see how much similarity there is with what is said in the Nicene Creed. And Joel, the next slide. Um, what I want to say, though, is that we, we don't stand up in the middle of our services and talk and preach the Nicene Creed. We preach the Word of God. And we believe that the Nicene Creed is based on the Word of God. And so just to emphasize that point, already we see this narrative progression of the story of Jesus in the Scriptures. And to have a look at the Colossians column, for example. Um, Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. And then he's the firstborn of all creation, chapter 2, 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We're moving into here the, the incarnation of Christ. Colossians 2, 20. If with Christ you died, he says. And really what he's doing here in 2, 20 to 3, 4 is he's saying we participate in the story of Jesus. We make his story our story. And so if with Christ you have died, then you should die to certain things in your life. If Christ has been risen, you should be risen to new life in Christ. He's applying the story of Jesus to our lives as believers. We indwell the life of Christ. And this is the, uh, it's not just a statement of belief, but it's, it's a statement about our very lives as Christians that is in focus here. And so uh, he goes on to talk about, if then you've been raised with Christ, one of the worst chapter divisions ever in the scriptures between chapter 2 and chapter 3 because it just flows. If with Christ you died, if, if then you have been raised with Christ, with, then verse 3, then your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is the ascension in view. And then he says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him. So we're, we're living out Christ's story with him because, as Paul loves to say, we are in Christ. Let's move on. Um, we now turn then to the Ephesians passage in focus, and we're right, really right at the end of our time here. Let me quickly point this out and then ask you again to, ref to, to review it uh, between now and next week, and then we'll read again this passage. 
This time I want to point out that the columns have to do with Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, you can see that emphasized with yellow, God the Father, and then in Him is Christ and the Holy Spirit over in the blue section of the, on the right side. Uh, the rows have to do with a focus in what is said on salvation with respect to Father, Son, and Spirit, and then the plan of God with respect to Father, Son, and Spirit, and then, and it's, the color doesn't show up too well here, but, um, sorry, the, it is yellow here. The, uh, the adoption or inheritance that we have with respect to Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, the salvation plan and inheritance are the three main subjects that are addressed. And the, the Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in all three of those. It's not as if the Father simply has a plan or the Son uh, has some salvation to do. But nevertheless, they're all in, interwoven. But for the purposes of capturing this, let's move on to the next slide. And uh, we do have to do a little separation out here. What is said of the Father at the top there is that this plan has been the plan of the Father since the beginning of time, from the foundations of the earth. The spiritual blessings that he has poured out on us is what he has all planned from the beginning of eternity. His wisdom, his plan, his choosing us, his predestining us as his church, his will that he works out, and the revelation of his mystery, all of these words are used in this passage of God's plan for us from the beginning of time. Uh, on the left side, the son, it's said of him that uh, it is a plan that is worked out through the blood of Christ, through his death on the cross. Jesus is referred to in terms of the word of truth and uh, accomplishing the gospel, the good news of our salvation. And then on the spirit side, which is going to be our focus next week, along with the other things said at the end of the creed, uh, the spirit is the one who seals this promise. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he is the pledge of our inheritance. And so you can see that the work of Father, Son, and Spirit, which is together, uh, not independent, this work is something that is in focus um, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the triune God at work. But the, the real focus of the passage is what's on the inside of the triangle, what it means for us who, who live in God, who are called into this relationship of the Trinity, the triune God. The uh, Eastern Church talked about the deification of Christians, and they didn't mean that we become gods. That's a misunderstanding. In fact, that's a heresy. Um, we can use the word heresy still, even though we're in a postmodern era. <laughs> but uh, but uh, what, it, what they meant by that was that God's character is formed in us. We become like him. We become made in the image of God. And so in the middle here, uh, these are the words that are used in our passage in Ephesians chapter 1 that, that bring out the significance of the work of the triune God for us who dwell in him. Uh, we're called to be holy and blameless in love, 
to experience the redemption of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of our sins through his shed blood. God in this has lavished, I love that word in verse 8, lavished his grace upon us. Just a bucket of grace poured out over us. And so we are promised an inheritance of his many blessings, just as the Jews had an inheritance in Israel. And uh, to become God's own people. And therefore, we are a people who live in this hope. Uh, And we are a people who live, as is said three times in this passage, we live for the praise of God's glory and grace. And so, while it is important to understand what we affirm about who God is, it's also true that this is a living uh, dwelling in the triune God that we're, ta- that we're confessing when we confess the creed. And so with that, then, um, I'll let Fred come and lead us in, in this.